Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to talk to everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Today, I'm joined by Peter Januardi of See the Stars. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexander. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So we talked about the pre-show about what we can talk about today, because there are quite a few topics we do have in common. And we agreed on talking about how to build teams that help nonprofits. So these are the agencies, these are the various individuals that will be supporting a nonprofit and some of the challenges that they have. But before we get into some of those details, what would you or how would you introduce yourself to someone who you're getting to know for the first time? Yeah, thanks for the introduction. I would tell you that when somebody asks me what I do, I try to describe the work that I do as being what I consider a venture socialist. It's kind of a lofty term, but really the work that I do involves taking the um, the craziest technology that we have that powers capitalism today. So understanding who consumers are, uh, figuring out what their needs are, and then trying to connect with them. Um, instead of trying to sell them a TV or get them to donate even, um, oftentimes what we try to do is get them connected with a supportive social service. So we're really using the best marketing technology, things like CRM and advertising platforms, to try and reach people where they are and help make their lives better. And this company, this uh, See the Stars, is uh, a very interesting name. How did you come up with that and what is the, the goal of this company? You know, I came up with the name of the company in 2021. I, I have to confess, I didn't actually invent the idea, but rather I remember listening to a public radio broadcast where they were interviewing um, a professor of poetry who edited a new uh, collection of poems that were really focused on making it out of the worst of the pandemic and getting to a place where we could be excited about living our lives and making a difference. And so the analogy that he used was really this notion of um, uh, Dante's Inferno. Have you have you read Dante's Inferno or Paradiso or, or any of those um, in those three works? No, unfortunately not. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll boil it down for you. In a nutshell, um, there are these travelers, they're unnamed travelers. They go journey through all of the circles of hell and they see the most horrible things uh, in, this, in this wretched, wretched place. And in the ultimate um, climax of the story, these people reemerge to the surface of the earth and they come out at nighttime and they come out hundreds of years ago and they behold this star, this starry, starry sky that is free of any of the light pollution that we're used to today. And their emotional um, response, the way that they got excited about leaving uh, these horrors in hell alone and being able to take a deep breath and look up at the sky and see all of the potential that those stars and galaxies and planets all represented was terribly refreshing for them. And so during you know the years 2020 and 2021, um, I, like many people, and certainly um, not to the degree as everyone, um, suffered some real sadness and loss. And for me, as I tried to start this new company, I really was struck by this desire to work on things that allowed me to see the stars again and feel that excitement that I feel every night that I get to look up at the sky um, and see planets and stars uh, millions and millions of miles away. And so that's how I came up with the concept for See the Stars. Um, this, this collection of poems is actually really great, but truly that's how um, I came to this name for my new company. It's a lovely um, imagery, and it's very appropriate, too, with the uh, James Webb Telescope taking better pictures than ever before of the universe. It's it's a wonder, right? The universe and the stars are just uh, a, a beautiful tapestry to look at, and, and you're right, and, and a very clear night. I mean, it's gorgeous. If if nothing else, just spending a few hours looking up at the skies in some remote part of the of the world where it doesn't have much um, light pollution is, is absolutely stunning. So let's jump into, then, 
building teams. I know that's a quite of a <laughs> quite of a left turn right there, but because I, I would really love to get through some of these topics that we identified, the, the key elements of building a good team and being able to support a, a nonprofit as best as possible. Let's start at the top then and talking about the first topic on the agenda, which is scaling. And to me, scaling means the ability of uh, for a team to be not only horizontally scaled, but also vertically. Horizontally means across multiple industries and vertically means to me at least more depth into it. So you might have one agency that can do everything, but nothing very well, a jack of all trades, so to speak. And that would look like a, you know, a line, a horizontal line on a graph versus some agencies are very, very skilled in one particular industry like nonprofit, and they go very deep. So that would look like an I. And then some agencies are a bit of the combination of the both, which is like a, a T type of thing. So in your terms, what does scaling mean and how does it apply to this context? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I think about the breadth and depth of what an agency can do or what a, a technology uh, vendor could do, you know, it really it really depends on what you're trying to do to be successful. And so about 10 years ago, I started a company called Strength in Members. And when I started the company, I thought we were going to be super narrow in terms of what we did. I had just finished up working for a software company that made some software that would let us look at you on uh, all kinds of social platforms, understand who you were, um, who your friends were, and then make decisions about how to market to you. Unfortunately for me, that technology and that kind of tactic was a little bit ahead of its time. And so we really had to um, increase our breadth, if you will. And so one of the things that we became really good at was uh, email marketing. We have developed you know, email marketing programs that raise millions and millions of dollars for nonprofits, big and small. Um, you know, I feel like one of the big challenges as I was developing that agency was that there was always this temptation to pick up that next client by just stretching a little bit, a little bit, a little bit further out of our comfort zone. And, you know, once in a while, to be honest, we would pick up projects and clients um, who had needs that we couldn't deliver on. And so in those cases, I felt like I was in this shell game where we had to go out and find staff who had some specific expertise, like, you know, uh, deploying you know, Salesforce Marketing Cloud five or six years ago, much harder than than it is now to find people who are really experts in that platform. And I found myself in a bit of a tight spot. And so, you know, really to deliver great results, um, I really suggest that people who are running agencies and technology companies try to keep that breadth limited um, to do those things that they're great at, um, to do those things that they're very good at. Because when you focus on those things, and of course, you need to take risks here and there. Um, but when you focus on those things that you can deliver and deliver well, you sleep a whole lot better because your clients are happier. You know, your your uh, service and software sales are greater. And really, it's that peace of mind that I suggest keeping your breadth fairly narrow. You know, you wanted to talk a bit about the depth as well. And were you thinking in terms of uh, competency or in terms of, you know, how much, you know, how many different types of expertise or, or services you can bring to bear? Yeah, that's a good question because you're already we're already slightly defining differently those I's and those T's. Because to me, when I was trying to vocalize it, I was thinking more across industries versus you were talking more about within the same industry, but different aspects of it versus like the CRM versus marketing versus lead gen, let's say. So before we get to that question about breadth in terms of the, or depth, I should say, in terms of breadth, were you thinking more about across industries of which the nonprofit space is one of them? Or are you thinking more about in the nonprofit space, the different elements that need to be brought to the table or could be brought to the table? Yeah, you know, um, thank you for that. I think that I'm really talking about both. And so, 
you know, when I was describing some of those challenging clients we had where we would take on a project that we thought we could deliver on, but didn't have, you know, a ton of expertise in it. Um, I think that goes both for like technical competencies, but also in terms of business models. You know, I think a lot of people describe nonprofits as this big monolithic, you know, philanthropic business model. But quite frankly, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know, and certainly people listening today understand that the nonprofit sector is so diverse that there are hundreds, if not thousands of different kind of business models. Even in the fundraising space alone, there is so much uh, variety in terms of how people raise revenue, whether it's uh, revenue that they, you know, earn by messaging consumers directly, whether it's estate and planned giving, whether it's corporate uh, involvement, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I feel like as we develop agencies and software companies, it's really important to make sure that we're delivering on the work that the customer needs us to do. And so that really puts it on us to make sure that as we approach both the breadth of business model that we're familiar with and we can support responsibly and hopefully take to the next level, we also need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, we may not ever be all things to all people when it comes to providing technical services too. So I see I see um, the model that you're describing, and it certainly is something that more and more agency and software professionals need to take into consideration as they build their business. When dealing with larger nonprofits, I mean, like you said, the demands are can be significantly greater than a smaller one. For example, you not only the CRM, but you got maybe a website or a digital platform of some kind that inter- needs to interact with the CRM. You might have, you know, the whole marketing side of things. These could be, I mean, entire projects in themselves requiring different teams. Or if it's one agency providing everything, I mean, you need to have a lot of people with a lot of different competencies to be able to manage that and support that well. So does it make sense that you have an agency that is a one-stop shop for all of these different things? Or is it better to niche down to something very, very specific to be really, really good at it? Well, from the customer's perspective, I think that everybody would love to have an all-in-one agency that can do everything that they might ever want them to do. Um, the unfortunate you know, piece for smaller and mid-sized nonprofit organizations is that it's very hard for them to afford an agency that truly has the ability to do all of those things very well and do them broadly across many nonprofit business models. Um, I think that one of the things that has really been a breakthrough in the last 10 years, I would say, I've observed this, is that, you know, in 2005, let's say, when I was talking to organizations about providing a service, they really wanted to be sure that they had everything they could get from one agency. And so the larger nonprofits, um, you know, $50 million, $100 million, billion-dollar nonprofits were able to afford that from primarily firms that served commercial sector. And so they were purchasing these services um, where the teams had great depth of expertise, but these companies really were more focused on commercial models uh, of how to run a business and how to ask consumers to make a connection with an organization and make more money. And so really the proof became in the pudding, if you will, so that these organizations might have worked with a all-in-one, you know, tons of competencies uh, style firm that served commercial outfits. But at the end of the day, they realized that because those experts, while they might have been experts in pharma or in retail or uh, consumer packaged goods, they really didn't understand the overall business of that nonprofit's business model. And so fast forward, what I've found in the last five or 10 years is that more and more customers are interested in finding a team of record rather than an agency of record. 
And this really requires them to take an open systems approach where they can trust lots of different agencies. They might have one agency or one software vendor who is the coordinating agency, but they know that they're not going to be successful unless someone really understands their business processes and also can deliver on those competencies. And so now even those very large organizations are doing the same thing where they are saying, great, we need this one vendor to help us with our technical deployment on our CRM system. We need another one to help us design the experience and the website. And we also need these other analysts who are good at you know, statistical regression and that sort of thing. And so I feel like the industry is evolving to a point where whether it's an agency or whether it's a software company or a nonprofit organization, they're really looking at results and prioritizing results over this notion that seems to me antiquated now that we would get everything we ever needed from one firm. The challenge for that I can see off the top of my head would be um, responsibility and ownership. Because if you have multiple players, uh, there could be a tendency to point fingers when something goes wrong and that no one wants to be accountable for various aspects of it. So I think in that model, which does work and can work, uh, making sure that the, um, the responsibilities that racy matrix is really clear on who does what and when, and then supplementing that with an advisor, maybe, or someone who works uh, you know, with the nonprofit directly, as opposed to an external agency, has that kind of advisory type of vision, the end-to-end vision of knowing, you know, what part goes in which place, I think that would be key. Uh, would you agree? Or would you say that, you know, as long as it's um, each team should fend for themselves and define their own boundaries? Yeah, Alexander, you make a great point. Um, I'm thinking of um, an organization that I've worked with for probably the last 10 years. Um, they're a national organization that works on improving human rights here in the United States. And they actually, and I remember the first time I was invited, they four times a year will convene a meeting with all of their vendors focused on, um, I'm sure they do it in other areas, but um, the group that I participated in was focused on their direct-to-consumer fundraising. And so they actually had um, divided that labor up really well. I mean, I think the imperative in that example I gave before in 2005 was that one owner on the nonprofit side and one owner uh, on the agency side would get together and talk. And really at the end of the day, um, the nonprofit owner was there to really just throw stuff over to the fence, over the fence to the agency to get done. And really, you know, it was more of an adversarial relationship. Today, more and more organizations like the one I was describing are doing what you just suggested. And that is that they really focus on um, their role shifting into one where they are managing vendors and getting the best out of teams, regardless of whether they work for the organization or whether they work for a, a technology or a marketing services vendor. And so we really do see that role shift for that organization I was describing before, they had one, basically a lead agency, the agency who at the end of the day was responsible for all of the results. And they knew when they took that assignment that that agency would have to work very well with the other vendors in the space. And so I can't tell you that it was a perfect um, relationship where you know the agencies wouldn't get together and try to elbow each other out a little bit, but I will tell you that that model really delivered some of the best results in the industry and I attribute it to the leadership at that organization who said, look, if you want to be one of our vendors, you need to come to the table and play well with others. And that model is working better and better as we go. So that would then lead to the point of saying that each agency had their own focus. It was not a one-stop shop. That at a certain extent, you should stop growing your agency and get better, deeper, go have the depth that you need to have, you know, hire employees that have a certain skill set rather than having something that's across the board. Agree, disagree. I agree with you. 
And as you were talking, I just started to think about what that implication was for an agency or for a, a technology uh, services vendor. You know, I think it probably has implications at a couple of levels. One is um, probably the hardest one, and that is the ego level, which is to say that, you know, you need to take those words off your website that say we are an all-in-one, complete, comprehensive agency that will solve all of your problems and swallow that for a second and say, okay, we are actually really great at fundraising. The pieces of fundraising we're great at are, say, email fundraising and social fundraising or advertising. The second place where I think it really um, presents an imperative is that we as agency professionals and people trying to build businesses need to really take that open systems approach with our peers as well. And so a number of times, um, what I did when I was running Strength in Members is that I would I would buddy up with other agencies that were um, in a similar space. They were adjacent. Um, we did things that they couldn't do. They clearly did many more things than we could do if they were better funded and more established. And really, I think you know it, it required me to take that competitive edge out of the way that I built relationships with others in my space. And then the last place I would say that what you're suggesting has implications for is really who you hire. Um, I would tell you that in that 2005 example, most agencies were trying to hire people full time. They were trying to find people who were great at everything. Um, and really, that model is it's not great because people eventually want to go somewhere else. If somebody has, you know, the depth of experience of, you know, 10 different technical competencies and the the breadth of experience to be able to work on, say, um, you know, email programs versus advertising programs versus, you know, virtual adoption programs. When that person leaves, you've got a giant hole in the organization and they are something of a unicorn and very difficult to replace. And so if you can manage all of your client relationships well, my suggestion is to actually work with a lot of different contractors who bring many, many strengths in competency and breadth of expertise. You know, it takes a bit more work, that's for sure. But at the end of the day, it's less likely that you'll be caught flat footed um, as you might when somebody leaves with that very deep and very broad expertise. I'm not saying you shouldn't try and hire those kinds of people. I'm just saying that, you know, a more scalable strategy for building your business is that where you actually have people uh, in a pool of either vendor partners or um, contractors or um, 1099s, however you want to describe them, that will let you solve a whole host of challenges related to your business's core competency. Yeah, those are good points. And if I were to address it or go into a bit more detail for each one of them, for the contractors, I definitely agree because most of my career, I've been a contractor. But the advantage of an agency working with one is that um, usually these contractors are, first of all, hard to get in terms of skill set. If, if they're really good at what they do, which is the kind of person you want to hire, then chances are they're going to be busy on other projects at the same time. So to get somebody that's full-time dedicated to you probably be pretty challenging versus having someone, you know, at least part-time, can really make a big difference. Uh, the second thing about partnerships, I love that. I think an agency that can partner with another agency that has a not a competitive but a collaborative type of experience is great. That's a wonderful idea. Definitely agree on that. And then the first point was about marketing. So yes, you definitely have to reduce your ego in terms of we do everything for everyone. But the scenario that I like to present to some people is that if you're trying to position yourself as a nonprofit, a nonprofit agency, you probably don't want the sign saying, I help nonprofits with problems or tech problems. It's such a generic <laughs> statement that is very difficult to attract someone's attention versus if you're ultra specific, ultra niched in a very good element and um, very good market or competency that you have, you can cater your marketing and your branding around that messaging and be very, very clear, very specific and very targeted. So there's a lot of advantages to that respect as well. 
All right, let's go on to number two then, developing leaders. So obviously in an agency, you need to have leaders, you need to have workers. What does it mean for you? How would you define a leader versus a worker? You know, um, I think that leaders in our space, and certainly there are different types of leaders for different spaces, right? You might want a different leader at NASA uh, for the person who's putting together the space shuttle or a different kind of leader in a in an emergency room, of course. But I think there are a couple of things that are really key elements of what makes a good leader in the technology and the marketing services space that serves the nonprofit industry. I would tell you that first and foremost, right, somebody who's a leader needs to have strong competency. They need to be good at what they do um, and have good experience when it comes to different nonprofit business models, as well as technical and marketing disciplines. You know, I think the thing that most divides um, a leader from someone who's just kind of um, doing their job and is not focused on um, growing a business is really that perspective or that vision. You know, I don't I don't think there's a um, a sharp line between someone who's a leader with a C-level title and someone who's a leader who's doing their job every day. I really feel like that vision for um, what the best possible result could be, what long-term results could be for any choice that we might make in a business is something that's really important um, and characterizes people who are leaders, not just with a fancy title, but people who are really going to contribute to the bottom line of the organization, uh, whether that's earning more money, whether it's saving more money, whether it's making processes more efficient, whether it's getting more out of a technology investment. Um, and then I would say a couple of the other things that are um, certainly on that list are, you know, leaders are people who are responsible. That's really a tough one sometimes because I think there's a, there is a fine line between being exceedingly responsible and over-responsible. And so, of course, we all want to be responsible to get a good result, but um, oftentimes I see people in the industry who are over-responsible and do things like, um, and I'm just giving you some examples, you know, they work all through their family vacations. They always have tons of hours left over for their PTO and their vacation every year. Um, you know, I, I may or may not have been a person who took a client call while uh, at a doctor's appointment once. And I feel like leaders are truly responsible, but the danger is that some leaders will become over-responsible and that certainly will contribute to their burnout um, and often affect their ability to scale uh, an organization. I would also say that leaders are truly vulnerable. You know, um, the best leaders, the leaders that engender the strongest trust in their teams um, are those that can admit when they've made mistakes. They can ask for uh, help when they need it. Um, they're people who aren't afraid to hire people who are smarter than themselves. And so that vulnerability is a big component of what makes a good leader in our space today. And then finally, you know, all of those things contribute to a leader generating the trust of the people that they work with. And that trust really motivates people to participate. Certainly, you know, when the chips are down and it's year end fundraising season and something breaks, you know, the day uh, after Christmas or, um, you know, the day before New Year's Eve, um, we're going to have to here and there make those calls where we all pitch in and get something really hard done. And to the extent that someone can motivate their team and show that vulnerability, show their commitment and their responsibility and get them to also help and solve those problems in our time of need is really um, one of those things that I think completely defines what a great leader is. Yeah, I think if responsibility is a, is a key factor for being a leader and also just, I mean, it's in the word itself, it's to lead, right? As opposed to to direct. So it's it's more like being in the front of the army, heading toward uh 
unknown uncertainty versus being in the back and telling people, you know, go faster, pull me faster kind of thing. So, yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting perspective, Alexander. I feel like the majority of people that have worked for me and my teams would agree with you. And I think that there's this um, still a group of people out there who really come to work and they expect that their that their boss is a boss and not a leader. And a boss is great at telling people what to do, but a leader is really that person, to your point, who will get their hands dirty, who will um, show that vulnerability and will really put in just as much hard work as their team because otherwise that trust goes way down and it really doesn't get the best result. It's leading by example. That's, that's I guess, exactly. the sum of what exactly. I... To your point, though, about working too much in terms of being overly involved in work, could that set the wrong example for the employees? That Because the, the leader now works, you know, 40 hours, not 40 hours, 40 hours a day, I was going to say, but <laughs> more than 40 hours a week. And, and, you know, possibly, like you said, during doctor's appointments, do you think that might set the stage for that the other people at the organization need to follow suit in some way? Yeah, I think that it does. I think that it honestly does. And that, um, you know, when it is too persistent, it is too, um, if, if that is the regular, you know, blistering pace at which the team operates, that's not good. Um, it certainly gets people to feel burned out sooner rather than later. And it also creates that space where people are not willing to come in and help you solve the hard problem the day after Christmas, right? It it creates this um, culture where, you know, people don't, they just don't feel as connected to their work when they believe that the expectation is 24-7 availability. Um, and I have to be honest with you, you know, I think over the course of my career, I've I've been that guy who's been 24-7 available and probably, you know, growing the company at the fastest clip and making the most money that I've ever made. But the the challenge is that that really isn't sustainable. And in the end, it really generates resentment and probably anger for the work that that you're doing. I know certainly there are days um, when I was working that hard and just really felt like I couldn't keep doing it. I just felt at my wits end and felt kind of imprisoned by the fact that I worked this hard yesterday, so I'd better work just as hard plus 10% today. Mm. Um, and to your point, it really is, it does set a bit of bad example for our teams. I think, you know, another great characteristic of a leader is someone who could recognize the volume of work and the quality of work that someone on their team is putting in and really help them focus on um, results more than the volume, right? There's no prize for busyness. It took me a long time to recognize that and realize that. Um, now, I certainly have that tendency, and I certainly come back to it at some times of the year when we're really busy. But um, truly, you know, the last thing we want is for our teams to burn out. And so trying to build that culture of responsibility, both to the work product as well as to ourselves, becomes really important. You just touched upon another Similar, um, not similar, but adjacent topic of the leader being able to promote and cultivate fellow workers to be better or to guide them, to coach them, to mentor them as well. I, I would imagine that's an important aspect of being a leader as well. Yeah, I think I think you make a good point. And I think that leaders must be able to um, make that investment in the development of their team. It certainly, you know, for the people who have uh, worked on my teams, I can't say all, but many of them would share with me that the time that we've invested in them as a company, um, both to develop them personally, as well as to develop the team and the way the team works together and understands each other's strengths, um, is one of those things that makes them really have a strong attachment to the work and to the company, but really it's to the team. And so we need to be able, if we're going to grow teams, keep teams performing at a high, high level, we need to be able to invest in those leaders on our team. 
as well to try and build those teams where people know how to relate to one another based on their individual differences and strengths in a way that can mentor each other and really build strong trust. Because when the trust is high, it's okay to operate in a low control environment. I know that probably sounds a little bit strange, but when you when you can trust your colleagues and your boss um, and the people who work for you, it becomes much easier to relax when you ask someone to go get a job done. You don't need to be a micromanager. You can trust the fact that they will get things done. It may not be in the way that you expected them to get it done, um, but they will get it done because their commitment level is just so high. In your experience, do you find it's better to either hire a leader so they come in as a leader or to promote someone to a leader? Because I imagine in the latter case, he might be more, the person might be more known within the organization or the agency, but sometimes you also can be promoted to incompetence. You know, someone who's a very good salesperson might not be a good sales manager versus, you know, a leader who is, comes in, they know what they're doing, but they don't necessarily have the same connection, at least at the beginning to the rest of the team. Which, which option do you think is the better approach? Wow. That's a, that's a really, um, that's a really good question. It's kind of challenging because I think there are pros and cons for doing both. You know, I think if you need to start a new business line um, and you really need to bring some new competency into a a sales or a service organization, um, hiring from the outside tends to be a really good idea unless there is someone on your team who just has latent expertise that they've not been using. I would recommend hiring more often than not from outside an organization if you are trying to build a new line of business or do something that you've never done before as an organization or a company. You know, I've had really great success promoting from within and developing leaders so that people who are familiar with the organization over the course of, you know, six months, a year, two years, we've been able to give them the right challenges and increasing amount of responsibility so that they can actually establish that very strong competency, the awareness of their peers that they're terrific at what they do. Um, And to your previous question's point, you know, when these new leaders that are elevated from within the organization can build that really tight rapport and develop their peers as well as the people who work for them and, dare I say, the people that they work for, um, those leaders tend to be the most successful in organizations. It's not a fit for everyone, and I certainly don't think we could just pluck any individual out of a company and promote them to CEO over the course of a very well-scripted couple of years. But I find that the most successful leaders inside organizations are those uh, people who have put their time and effort into the organization and have really developed that strong trust with the people that they work with and work for. I imagine there's other factors as well, and that good employee or, or um, resource or person would want to invest. Like if they're enjoying what they do, and obviously you want to have people that enjoy what they do, they they, are, they get enjoyment from what they're doing. And they can get a, a greater sense of satisfaction knowing that there is a future for them ahead because not everybody, I imagine, actually I can't say for sure, but I imagine there are some people who would love to be promoted, to grow, to contribute more and, and to to use their experience and their knowledge that they've gained over time and share it with others as opposed to just staying in their one position, which you know might be perfectly adequate for, for some. So doing that, just giving them a roadmap to say, look, if you achieve these kinds of milestones in your career, we would be happy to promote you because you were showing us all the right indicators that you are, you know, the man or the person for the job. So I imagine that that is actually a stronger position than just hiring someone externally saying, here's the, here's our leader. Let's just follow what he does. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think you also make a good point, And that is that we need to provide people with pathways to grow. Nobody, um, well, 
And I would, I would probably offer one caveat to that, and that is everybody's got a different plan for their career. And so, quite frankly, I think there's this weird capitalist compulsion that we all expect that everyone wants to go to work for a company and work, work, work and get promoted, you know, from associate director to director to senior director to vice president, from vice president to senior vice president, executive vice president, and someday they're the CEO of the company. And that's just not the case. You know, I think there are plenty of people who come to work every day and they enjoy their work. They they even love their work. They love the organizations they get to work with. But because their priorities are elsewhere, right, they want to be, um, you know, the best mother or father they can be. They want to be a great triathlete. Um, perhaps they're working on writing the next great American novel. You know, we have this expectation that that those people will also come to work and want to get to the top. Well, in actuality, they're very happy to be the best data analyst or the best production manager. And they don't really have that ambition to go to the top. That doesn't mean that um, we can't take advantage of their expertise and their commitment. And it also doesn't mean that we need to force them up some kind of ladder. And so I think in many cases, it becomes really important to provide our team members with pathways, but those pathways need to be relevant to what they want to do. And I think it's incumbent on us as managers to really understand what it is um, someone wants to do. And that takes time, that takes energy to invest in getting to know the people on our teams and really understand what's important to them. That's a really good point. Yeah, thank you for um, sharing that. And then in terms of shifting a little bit to strengths, because I think one of the responsibilities of a good manager, a good leader, is to recognize uh, the strength of your team and to know either how to position individuals within your team or leverage the skills of various individuals, because we can't always be good at everything. Uh, I remember a very clear example in my past where we were three or four solution architects, but each one of us had a certain skill set that overlapped a little bit with each other, but they were quite unique. And I noticed that depending on the project that was at hand, the manager knew based on our skill set who to assign to what position and, and what responsibility. What would be your comments about that kind of uh, allocation? Yeah, I love this topic of strengths. Um, I will tell you that one of the, the best breakthroughs I've made in developing individuals and developing teams was this tool that my coach used with me 12 years ago. Um, and I know because we started working the year before my daughter was born, and this has made such a difference. And that is really when you take the opportunity to figure out what your strengths are, you you really kind of flip the entire notion of getting better and getting better and all this pressure to get better on its head. So if you walk into the self-help section of Barnes & Noble, 99% of the books are all about what you're doing wrong and how this book, by purchasing it, will help you transform and get better at whatever that is, whether it's you know, eating right or um, building the right relationship with your partner uh, or being great at work. And there's this framework that the Clifton Strengths team has developed. They're a division of Gallup um, that will help you identify your top strengths. And so I've used it personally uh, with my own personal development and my development at work, but also with my teams to understand what people are good at. Are they great at relationships? Are they good at um, tactical analytical tasks? Are they good at really convincing a crowd? And what I have found is that when we understand what people's strengths are, we can ask them to do things uh, in particular ways that really leverage those strengths. Um, it's it's a terribly simple. Um, it it just it just astounds me at how um, wonderfully simple identifying someone's strengths is and helping them be successful. Um, I would also say that it's a very helpful tool as we look at the members of a team. And so I've worked on lots of teams um, 
whether it's a production level team or a team that is doing creative work or even the executives at software companies. And when we look at what individual strengths are across a team, oftentimes we'll find that the team is overloaded. So I can't tell you how many uh, software companies I've worked for where it is primarily white men in the C-suite and they're all you know, taking the strength profile and every one of them has achiever as their number one strength and strategic as number two. And I can't tell you what that ends up doing is creating an environment where there are a whole lot of leaders, if you will, who are just, you know, trying to come up with some great ideas and some great ideas, but they can't execute. And so what we try to do in those cases is really make sure that we're building that team so that people's skills complement one another. So if our team is already over um, over-indexed, if you will, for strategic thinking, um, we bring people onto the team who are activators, people who can get things done. Um, if we feel like the team doesn't have enough expertise in relationship building, we'll pull people onto the team uh, that have woo, if you will, talents where they're really good at influencing other people's impressions and decisions. Um, I find that focusing on people's strengths is really, really important and is much better than this um, approach to management that I have to be honest, in technology, I felt more often than not that is truly disciplinary in nature. And that is to say that, you know, if we hire you as a vice president, Alexander, you should come here and be able to build relationships and get things done no matter what, when in actuality, that may or may not be what we've hired you for. You might have some great expertise in deploying CRM systems like Salesforce, um, but you've never had to develop talents or your, your strengths are not those of relationship building. And of course, I barely know you, so this is just an example, but you can see how Building teams where people complement one another's strengths and coming up with a well-rounded team allows us to make a much more enjoyable work environment, first and foremost, but at the end of the day, generate a whole lot more performance for the organization or for the company. There was a lesson I learned many years ago about that was very humbling to me, is that uh, there was, there was a, an individual at the organization that it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I was really trying to figure out why is it there was just something about him that I, I, I just, he had skills and he had actually really good skills in, in things that I didn't have. And that was the, the core of it. That was the reason why is that I realized that I was never going to be as good as him in this particular part. And I had to realize that I'm not going to be, and I'm more than that, I shouldn't try to be. That I, instead of focusing on my weaknesses and, and trying to improve my weaknesses, that I should double down on my strengths. And that kind of philosophy really helped me, guide me, saying, I am on the right path. My path is obviously different than his path. And I have skills that he doesn't have. And those are the ones that I should lean into and really leverage. So I think part of um, bringing out the best of employees is understanding that even though they might not be so good at something in particular, that it's okay. Like it's, they will have strengths and, and, and to really invest their time and energy in those strengths. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. I appreciate that one. I think along the same lines, one of the things that becomes really important, especially in technical teams where, you know, there's really this heavy emphasis on analytical thinking and precision, um, that sometimes we actually create an environment where if you get a wrong answer, that really um, weighs heavily on you, but also other people's perspectives of um, your competency and your expertise. And it just means that people may not come to you the next time they have a problem to be solved. One of the things that I think is really helpful is creating this culture of learning where it's expected and encouraged that you ask questions and that there's no question uh, that someone shouldn't answer. I think that culture of learning also becomes really apparent when we 
work with people who may have made a mistake. And when they feel like they can tell you that they've made a mistake, right? Whether that mistake means they sent an email out to 10 million people and it went to uh, the wrong file or that a link didn't work and a customer lost money. Um, all of these things are, are career-ending mistakes that you can make in many technical organizations. When we create a culture where we encourage people to take that accountability, to be vulnerable and bring us those challenges or those mistakes, it really allows us to create stronger teams and stronger individuals because they know that they'll get support from their manager um, when it comes time to fix that problem. And you know, in every one of the cases where I've done that, the person who made that mistake has never, ever made that mistake again. And I, I really attribute a lot of it to our approach for um, making sure that people feel like they can bring mistakes to us and they don't need to be perfect every single time. Um, I don't know. Do you think that that is unique to technical teams? Sadly, most of my experience is, is, is in some tech space of one kind or another. Um, but I would like to think that it applies for everything, that in the sense of when you do make a mistake, you should definitely own the mistake, apologize for it, and then make amends in the best way that is possible. And and it might end being it might end up being a career ending move, but at least you are you know you're an adult and taking responsibility. You're not just shying away from it or trying to point fingers at someone else. Uh, there was a big outage recently in um, in Canada for Rogers, for example, where uh, more than a million people lost cell phone service and even emergency services was down. And it was you know various reasons of why that happened. But again, someone took ownership and it was end up being the CEO. Uh, at least he publicly announced that, you know, he took responsibility and that he would do better and this and that. And that kind of messaging I found to be very strong, very positive, very impactful. And it wasn't just him pointing fingers at a various team or whatnot. So that's important. I was also curious to know in terms of the opposite of strengths, if someone has certain vulnerabilities, we, we kind of maybe alluded to it a little bit, but I'm curious to know a bit deeper if you know that a particular employee has a certain weakness, how do you go about either nurturing it or telling them that it's okay? Uh, do you need to tell them it's okay? Do you just let it fester? Like, how do you address uh, deficiencies in in skill sets? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, it still has a lot to do with that strength inventory I mentioned before. So I'll give you a, an example of a woman who worked on my team for five or six years um, all of her expertise or her strengths, if you will, were in the relationship domains. Um, she was not a technical expert. Um, she was really good at trying to establish harmony on a team, on trying to uh, broker relationships, make sure that, that um, things move forward in that way, but largely through relationships. And so her analytical abilities um, were probably a six out of 10, I would say. Um, but because I could recognize that her strengths were really focused on um, keeping the team happy, building harmony and that sort of thing. I was able to use those types of strengths to have her actually improve her analytic abilities. So if you will, you know, her responsibility was for developing these um, exacting fundraising emails that we would send out and each one had to raise a certain amount of money to stay on budget and that sort of thing. If I really just relied on pushing her in that analytical domain, she never would have done what she did, which was to raise tens of millions of dollars for animal charities and charities that help people with visual disabilities. And so I find that, um, you know, trying to look at what someone's strengths are, in her case, again, relationships and keeping the team in harmony, was what I could use to actually motivate her to perform much better on these analytical tasks. Um, I find that it's really important too to establish that active conversation with someone. 
you know, you you mentioned um, in your question, is it important to admit that vulnerability uh, or to push someone to identify those weaknesses? And I think it absolutely is. Um, I always appreciate when people bring it to me. I might not uh, appreciate the first time someone tells me that I've got uh, a weakness in an area, but really knowing that and hearing that from someone who cares allows me to do something with it. And whether it's finding a team member who can complement my work in a way where their strength complements that weakness, or whether I can use my other strengths um, to make up for or to do better in that domain of what my job is technically requiring of me. Love it. Peter, listen, uh, we've only covered uh, about half of what we were hoping to cover today. So what I'm proposing is that we, we park the conversation here now and then pick this up at a later date to continue the topics. What do you think? That sounds great, Alexander. I really love this conversation. Awesome. So just to, as an outro for this particular episode, uh, where can people get in touch with you? How can they find you online? Yeah, thanks so much, Alexander. I'd love to hear from people. My email address is peter at againseethestars.com. And our website is always uh, available at againseethestars.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for today. We'll pick this up at a later point. In the meantime, I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again for Agents of Nonprofit.